Welcome to the podcast of Pengrove Community Church. We exist to bring glory to God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. Our church is located about 45 minutes north of San Francisco, and if you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us. You can also learn more about us online at pengrovechurch.org. Enjoy the sermon. All right, well, I'm excited to, to get back into the book of Hebrews with you this morning. It's been a couple weeks And we are back in chapter 12. Like many passages in Hebrews, it's really challenging. It's confronting and even convicting, but it's also encouraging and so incredibly relevant to our lives as Christians. This past week, I had a chance to get lunch with Joe Mosslander. Most of you know him, I think. He's here many Sundays, here today, and he's a real blessing to our church family. And at lunch, he he shared with me about some conversations he was having with non-Christian friends of his. And I didn't get permission uh, from him to share this story, but I think he's okay with it, so we'll just, we'll keep going. Joe's been trying to share the gospel with with non-Christian friends, but as it is with most people, these friends of his have some hesitations. They're not very open to, to hearing about the gospel and hearing about following Jesus. And one issue that they've expressed to Joe is that, it's hard for them to understand how Jesus could make a difference for them. And for for those of us who know Jesus, who have a relationship with him, it's hard for us to understand how anybody could think that he wouldn't make a difference, right? But but if you're coming from a non-Christian perspective, Jesus was this Middle Eastern Jewish guy who who lived and died roughly 2,000 years ago. What could he possibly have to offer for our lives today? And the same thing is true for the Bible. I think many people feel this way. The New Testament was written by followers of Jesus, who were also Middle Eastern Jewish guys who lived and died roughly 2,000 years ago, half a world away in a completely different culture, who wrote in a different language. What does it have to do with my life today? Well, it has everything to do with your life today. And I think the book of Hebrews is the perfect example. We've seen this over and over again throughout the book. It's utterly remarkable because Hebrews was written originally to these first century Christians, sometime in the 60s AD, probably living near Rome, and these first century Christians who came from a very strongly Jewish background. It is filled with issues related to Judaism, to the Jewish temple. It is filled with all kinds of obscure references to the Old Testament. Yeah, I mean, there are like two full chapters on Melchizedek and the Melchizedekian priesthood. What does that have to do with me? But somehow, I found, and I'm sure you found the same thing, it still speaks to us. By God's divine inspiration, it speaks powerfully to you and me. Even if we don't share that same culture, that same time period, that same location, that same language, that same Jewish background, it feels like it's a million miles away, but it still speaks to us because it is inspired by God. It has a supernatural ability to transcend culture and time and place and speak to anybody and to apply to anybody. So part of it, part of the reason it still speaks to us is that it's supernatural. And part of it is because these people were, in many ways, just like you and me. It was written for a group of Christians who were struggling. 
who are doubting, who are wondering if it's really worth it to follow Jesus. And I think many of us have felt that way at times. In chapter 12 specifically, the author encourages these Christians to run the race with endurance. We get this picture of the Christian life as a a long-distance race, a sort of marathon, and we're encouraged to run and to keep running and to run to win the race and to keep going no matter what. And this is written to people who were tired. Anybody ever feel tired? Anybody ever feel exhausted? These people were tired of trials and challenges and persecutions. And we learn later in chapter 12 that some of them have experienced discipline from God. They've gone through real pain, through real suffering as a result of God's discipline in their lives. And so the author reminds them in the middle of chapter 12, this discipline just means that he loves you. You think your challenges and your pain and your suffering are a sign of God's disfavor, when in reality, they're a sign of God's favor. God is investing in you. If God didn't care about you, he would have just let you go and do your thing. But he disciplines you because he cares about you, because he's investing in you and molding you and shaping you for his kingdom. And then the author says this. That's kind of chapter 12 leading up to our passage. He writes these words that we're going to look at today. So talk about relevance. Talk about significance for our lives today. This passage is for any Christians who are struggling or doubting. It's for Christians who have messed up and made a lot of mistakes. It's for Christians who are hurting and wondering if they can keep going. Our text this morning is for people like that. So if that's you, or if you know anybody like that, then listen carefully. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll read the text for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and join me as I pray for us. Fathers, we approach your word. We pray for clarity, God. We pray for understanding. We pray for the ability to apply this to our lives. God, would you use these words powerfully in our lives? God, would you anoint me? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit and and speak through me to, to these people? Speak through your word to these people. God, we need you. We need your word. Would you help us this morning? Would you be with us this morning? We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So what is the message that God has for us this morning? What is God saying to Christians who are tired and hurting? 
He's saying that we need to tough it out and keep going. He's saying if you've been knocked down, you need to get up and keep going. God is so often tender and gentle and patient with us. The Bible says that God is love, and he truly is. And God is full of love and kindness and patience to you all of the time. But sometimes we need tough love. God has a tough side too, and sometimes that's exactly what we need. We need not just tender, quiet love from God. Sometimes we need tough love from God. I want you to notice the attitude here. These words have a, a certain feel, a certain attitude. In fact, I think we are being encouraged to adopt a certain attitude ourselves. When you're suffering, when you're exhausted, when your hands are, are drooping and your knees are shaking, you need to be what? What do you need to be? What is the text telling us? I think the message is that we need to be determined. Determined to keep following Jesus no matter what. Determined to honor him and obey him. Determined to fight off any sin in our lives that may cause us to fall away from Jesus. We can say determined or committed, devoted, intent, focused, resolved. I love that word resolved because I think it captures the spirit of this passage, and it also has a really incredible historical background. So I want to share a little bit of that history with you. We'll hit the rewind button. We're going all the way back to the 18th century for a minute. On the frigid night of December 18, 1722, a teenager dipped his quill in the ink jar and began to write. He probably cupped his hands toward the warm lantern for a moment just to make his fingers more agile in the chilly air. Then he began to compose. Jonathan Edwards was just 74 days past his 19th birthday when he wrote the first batch of his famous resolutions. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, he's a very famous figure in church history. He was a great preacher and, and theologian and scholar, and he was devoted to following Jesus with all of his might. You can see it clearly in his resolution. Starting that night in 1722, he wrote a series of 70 resolutions. They're all written in 18th century English, so they're, they're hard to understand, and I want to give a little disclaimer here. Maybe you have heard of Jonathan Edwards, and maybe you think he's just a Puritan, and all Puritans are are angry and mean and, and fire and brimstone and, and strict and nothing you want, have, want to have anything to do with. That's not how the Puritans were at all. That is just a, a popular myth. Jonathan Edwards was a, a great theologian, a great scholar, a great preacher, and full of love for God, for his people, for, for his congregation, the Puritans, were great examples of what it means to be a Christian. They weren't all harsh and mean and fire and brimstone. They were great Christian scholars and thinkers and, and pastors. And so we can learn a lot from them. And one thing we can learn is this from Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. He wrote 70 of them, but I want to share just a, a few for you that have been translated into modern English. Resolution number six, he wrote, Resolved to live with all my mights, until the day I die. Resolution number 14, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Number 16, 
resolved never to speak evil of anyone. Number four, resolved never to do anything except what brings glory to God. Number 22, resolved to earn as many treasures in heaven as possible. You see, Jonathan Edwards was a man completely committed to running the race for Jesus with all of his might. He was a man who exemplified the attitude that we are commanded to have in this passage. Look again at verse 12. It's an attitude that says, no matter how many times life knocks me down, I'm going to get up and keep going. No matter how many challenges and trials and discouragements I face, I will not stop following Jesus. No matter how exhausted I am, no matter how discouraged I am, I'm going to get back up and keep running the race. And what exactly are we running for? What are we striving for? If that's the attitude, uh, what, what is the goal? Well, verse 14 tells us we are called to strive for holiness, and we are called to strive for peace with everyone. Then in verse 15, we are commanded to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Not me, not you, not anyone. You are commanded to see to it that no one, not, not you, not anybody, fails to obtain the grace of God. So what we see is that this passage is not just for individual Christians. It's about living in community as Christians. And we're going to circle back and talk more about that at the end. But right now, I want to focus on what we're supposed to be running for and striving for. The main focus is holiness. So if you're a discouraged Christian, if you're a tired Christian, and you're ready to, to get back up off the floor and keep going, this is what you are going for, holiness. And in some ways, holiness is so simple. If you want to be holy, be like Jesus. Read the Gospels and try to imitate Jesus. Try to by God's grace, have that same character and spirit towards other people. Try to treat people like Jesus treated people. If you want to be holy, do that. If you want to be holy, read the New Testament and obey it. You can read the Old Testament too, that's very profitable, but you don't need to obey all the stuff in the, the Old Testament. A lot of that was fulfilled by Jesus. So for, for simplicity's sake, read the New Testament and focus on obeying all of the commandments of the New Testament and, and focus on doing those things and not doing the things it tells you that you shouldn't do. That is how you strive for holiness. And let me tell you, it takes a lot of striving to do that. It sounds simple. It sounds easy. But when you actually try to do it, you find it is not easy. And, and I put it that simply because the reality is we could spend hours, we could spend a whole year of sermons digging into the theological depths of holiness. But that's not what most of us need. And that's not really what this passage is about. It's not about deep understanding. It's about simple action. Obey God. Imitate Jesus and strive for peace with everyone. Now we're, we're, we're talking about running the race for Jesus. And the fact is that for many of us, this is one of those things that often knocks us off course. It's a common obstacle 
in this race. I'm talking about conflict with other people, especially other Christians. So if you find yourself weary, if you find yourself hurting, I think that sometimes what you'll find is that it's due to problems in your relationships. Why are we commanded here to strive for peace with everyone? Because it's a lack of peace with those around us that inhibits our relationship with Jesus and causes us so much pain. We, we develop conflict with other people, problems with our relationships, with our family, with our friends, with people at church, with people at work, with our spouses. It's hard to run the race for Jesus when you're weighed down by conflicts and problems and drama with people in your life. It's hard to be a Christian when you are in conflict with other people. Let me say that again. It's hard to be a Christian when you are in conflict with other people. It sounds kind of radical, but if you want radical, listen to Jesus. This is what he said on the topic, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. He said, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. I want you to think about this for a minute. Are you finding it hard to follow Jesus? Are, are you struggling in your faith? Do you know that you're not living the Christian life the way that you're supposed to? Maybe the problem is your relationships with other people. In other words, your relationship with other people is directly connected to your relationship with God. We treat them as separate so many times. We view our relationship with God as an individual, personal, private thing. And in some ways, that is. But in other ways, other very significant, very important ways, your relationship with God is directly connected to your relationship with other people. Now saying that, I want to be clear that the Bible says we cannot be friends with everybody. The Bible teaches very clearly we will not be friends with everybody. Following Jesus will lead to conflict. They hated Jesus, which means that they'll hate us too. Following Jesus will make people mad at you at times, and you are not required to be buddies with everybody. Here's what you are required to do. Romans 12, verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, Live peaceably with all. I, I think sometimes we assume that the Bible expects us to have to have friendships with everybody. The Bible we assume that striving for peace with everybody means that we have to have complete, total peace with everybody. When in reality, that's not the case. We just have to try, if possible, so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all. And that may require a lot. It may require you to humble yourself, to admit that you're wrong, to swallow your pride, to get into conflict with somebody and to know that they have wronged you, they have done terrible things to you, but to not require them to make it up to you, but to forgive them, to just let it go, to swallow your pride, to let it go, to forgive like Jesus has forgiven you. You are required to do all of that and to realize that even then, 
reconciliation may not happen. It, it doesn't always work, but you have to give it a shot. You have to try. That's what it means, as verse 14 says, to strive for peace with everyone. Now, what does it mean in verse 15 when it talks about this root of bitterness that may spring up? I think our inclination is to read that in terms of our relationships with other people. We're told to strive for peace, but there might be a root of bitterness that will spring up. Well, immediately we think that means, you know, I'll get bitter at them or, or they'll get bitter at me. There will be some kind of bitterness in our relationships, but that's not what the text is saying. It's saying something else entirely, something completely different. Notice how root of bitterness is in quotes. It's in quotes because the author is pulling that phrase from an Old Testament passage. He's pulling it from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 through 19. It says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, here's what the root of bitterness is. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. That's the root of bitterness that can poison a whole community of Christians. It's the person who says to himself, the person who says to herself, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Though I'm not obeying God, though I'm not living a holy and righteous life, though I am continuing in this sin that I know that I need to repent of, but I'm just not repenting, it'll be okay. I've got time. It's the heart that says, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but there's still time for me to come back to God. I'll be okay. But is there? Is there still time? Look at verse 17. When Esau decided to come back, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You can read the whole story of, of this, this incident in Esau's life in Genesis chapter 25, but I think it really comes down to this. Esau was the kind of man who didn't really care about spiritual things. In the book of Genesis, we see how God made this wonderful covenant. This is kind of the backstory for Esau's situation in our text. In the book of Genesis, we see how God made this wonderful, amazing covenant with Esau's grandfather, Abraham. God promises Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And Abraham passed on this covenant, this blessing, this right, this promise to his son Isaac. And then Isaac wanted to pass it on to his kids, Jacob and Esau. But Esau didn't really care, it seems, about this divine promise of blessing uh, for his family. He sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of soup because Esau, it seems, didn't really care about spiritual things. Here he has this glorious covenant, this glorious heritage, this amazing promise from God to his family, and he's like, whatever, I'm hungry, you can have it, Jacob, please just make me some soup. So Jacob does, and he inherits the birthright of Esau. So he just didn't care, I guess, but we see that later on, he did care. 
that later on in his life, he changed his mind. He eventually he came around. He realized his mistake and he came back. But by then, it was too late. Verse 17. When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The book of Hebrews warns us repeatedly that you can reach a point of no return. You can read about this in chapter 3 of the book of Hebrews, in chapter 6, in chapter 10. There are all these very intense, very scary passages Trust me, I don't enjoy preaching this any more than you enjoy hearing it, but it's in the Bible. It is the Word of God, the divinely appointed Word of God for us that we all need to, need to hear. If we didn't need to hear it, it wouldn't be in here. So what we need to hear is that you can reach a point of no return. You can blow off spiritual things. You can harden your heart against God. You can harbor stubbornness in your heart and say, I know I shouldn't be doing this, I shouldn't be living like this, but uh, it'll be okay, eventually eventually I'll come back. Well, sometimes people want to come back, but they're not able to come back. And it's not that God's forgiveness has limits. The problem is that our hearts have limits. The issue is not with God and His love. God's love is infinite and boundless. God's love has no limits. But our hearts have limits. If you harden your heart against God enough times, if you harden your heart against God long enough, eventually it becomes so hard that no amount of wishing and wanting and regretting will make it soft again. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather in other words, many Christians find themselves exhausted and hurting and doubting and tired because they've been rebelling against God. Many Christians have drooping hands and weak knees because God has disciplined them and it has been painful. So if that's you or, or if that's somebody that you know, here's how you need to respond. You need to respond by making straight paths for your feet. That's what the text says. That means getting back on the straight and narrow, uh, abandoning all crooked and perverse ways. You need to respond by striving for holiness. You need to respond by making peace with the people around you. And you need to do it before it's too late. Let the discipline of God in your life, let the trials in your life, the suffering in your life be a wake-up call. Because you don't want to end up like Esau. That's the warning in our passage. Consider yourself warned, but I also want to encourage you. I want to share three incredibly encouraging realities in this passage. And, and one of them that I don't have on my notes is just the fact that God is love. That if you're, if this passage is heavy and intense, or if it's scary, remember, God is love, that he is infinitely loving and gracious and kind. That, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast mercy and love for his people. So, so whatever, whatever we think about God's love and grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, whatever we think about the greatness of it, it's even greater still. 
So that's one reality that is encouraging despite this intense warning. Here's another one. God is commanding us in this passage, if we've been knocked down, to get up and keep going and keep striving for holiness and peace, but he's only commanding us to do what he's already been doing in our lives. That's what we learn by looking at the context of this passage. If you look at the, the first, the two verses before our passage begins, we'll read them now, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 10 through 11. Listen to this. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So in verse 14, in verse 14, we are commanded to strive for holiness and peace. But the verses right before tell us that God is already at work in our lives, producing holiness and peace for us. God is not asking you to produce these things on your own. He's just asking you to get with the program, to, to join in the work that he's already doing in our lives. God never asks us to do something that he doesn't give us the power to do. I always think of that passage in Philippians chapter 2, that God is at work in us both to, to will and to work for his good pleasure. And what that tells us is that God expects us to, to, to love people and desire holiness and to do good things, but before we even get there, before he even asks us, he's already working in us to give us what we need to love people and to strive for holiness and to, to do good things. So, in reality, he's simply asking you to walk with him, to walk in the direction that he's been trying to lead you all along. The Christian life is like those little walkways at the airport where you get on, you walk, but it's already moving, and it just carries you along as you're walking. And I think so much of the, the exhaustion, the spiritual exhaustion that we run into as Christians is we get on the walkway, but we start going in the wrong direction. Well, no wonder you're tired. God's moving you this way, and you're trying to walk that way, and you're getting nowhere, and you're exhausted. That's what happens when we rebel against God as Christians, and that's what leads to the tiredness and the discipline. Just walk with him. Just go in the direction that he's already taking you. It's that easy. It's that sweet. It's that peaceful. God has already provided you everything that you need in order to begin striving for holiness in peace. And here's another encouragement for you. We are commanded in verse 13 to make straight paths for our feet. But how do you do that? Well, that metaphor of walking on straight paths actually comes from the book of Proverbs. One, one passage where that phrase is used is Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 through 6. It says, trust in the Lord. Listen to this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Again, God is not asking you to produce holiness on your own or to run, run the race on your own. He will make straight your paths. I want you to, to feel the gentleness and sweetness of Proverbs chapter 3. Our passage today comes across as pretty challenging 
and tough, but like I said before, it's tough love. But when you dig a little deeper, when you look at the Old Testament references, you can see the love behind it. So it's toughness on the surface, but love underneath. And here's the final encouragement for us. When God tells tired and hurting Christians to get up and to keep going and to keep striving for peace and holiness, he does not expect us to do it alone. He expects us to do it together. He expects you to need help and to have help. He expects you, in doing this, to depend on Jesus. I want want you to look again at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So you are commanded, again, to see to it that you do not fail to obtain the grace of God, but you are also commanded to see to it that the people sitting next to you today do not fail to obtain the grace of God. You are commanded to see to it that the people around you, that your friends, that your family, you're commanded to watch out for everybody and to help everybody, and everybody else is commanded to help you to see to it that you do not obtain, do not fail to obtain the grace of God. We're commanded to make sure that no root of bitterness springs up and defiles us, and that no root of bitterness springs up and defiles the people next to us and the people around us. All of this is meant to be a community project. Nobody is meant to do the Christian life alone. You need to be watching out for others, and you need others who are watching out for you. We, we all have our own blind spots, right? We all have the sin that creeps up in our lives and we don't notice it. But trust me, other people notice it. If you're married, just ask your spouse. They can tell you all about your sin and shortcomings. We need other people to help us see what we can't see in ourselves. And we need other people to pick us up and to carry us along when we're hurting. A number of years ago, I, I came across a book by the famous Duke theologian Stanley Hauerwas. I noticed this book at first because it has like a bright red cover and a really provocative title. It's called Unleashing Scripture, Freeing the Bible from Captivity to America. Pretty provocative, isn't it? Unleashing Scripture, Freeing the Bible from Captivity to America. And his main point What Hauras is trying to say is that we have taken the Bible captive to our American ideals. So when we read scripture, we sort of reinterpret it, or we read it through the lens of our culture so that it fits with the American dream. Anybody ever heard of the prosperity gospel? The gospel that says, the false gospel that says that God just wants to come alongside you and help you fulfill all of your dreams and get happy and healthy and wise. And and God just wants to fill your life with with money and blessing and health. And that's what Christianity is about. Jesus is like your personal assistant who comes along just to help you achieve your goals and dreams. That's a great example of what Howell is talking about. We, We reinterpret the Bible to fit with the American dream. And we also reinterpret the Bible to fit with our rugged American individualism. We we don't recognize it, we don't realize it, but America is so hyper-individualistic 
We are so focused on ourselves. So Howard West proposes a radical solution. He says in the book that maybe we need to take the Bible out of the hands of individual Christians because when we read it by ourselves, we only apply it to ourselves. We make it all about us. And so, so he says maybe it's too dangerous for us to read all by ourselves. And I do not agree with that. Let me just make that clear. That's what Howard West says. It's a very extreme solution. I, I don't quite agree with what he's saying, but he does have a point. And we can see his point with our passage today. I think all of us are inclined to read this passage, to understand this passage, as really just being about us in our relationships, our relationship with God. But this passage is not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about us. It's a, a community project. It's about us running the race for Jesus together. So when you're exhausted, when your hands are drooping and your knees are shaking, the rest of us need to pick you up and carry you for a while. We need each other. Clearly, this is meant to be a community endeavor. And clearly, we need Jesus. Every commandment to strive and to run and to try harder, I think, needs to be paired with a reminder of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We're all such little legalists at heart. It's, it's like we can't shake it. Everybody, by default, is born thinking that they can earn their way to heaven. Everybody, by default, is born thinking, I've just got to try hard and do a bunch of good stuff and be a good person so that I can go to heaven when I die. And then the gospel comes along and shows us that we can never be good enough, that we need Jesus to do what we can never do on our own. And by God's grace, we believe the gospel. We come to trust in Jesus to do what we can't do on our own. But we always refer, revert back. We always sort of by default subtly switch back to that way of thinking that says, it's up to me. It's up to me. I got to do this. I need to figure this out. And when the reality is we all need grace. So every time we see a commandment like this that appeals to a our, our little hidden legalists, we need to be reminded of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. It is all grace. You know what's interesting? When Jonathan Edwards wrote his 70 resolutions, he intended, of course, on keeping them. He was very intent, very resolved, probably more committed than any of us have ever been to pursuing the glory of God and living for treasures in heaven and obeying all of the commandments. He was 1,000% committed. He even kept a diary of his progress with those resolutions. So he wrote the resolutions on one page, and on another page he kept a diary of how he was doing each week with all of his resolutions. And what we learned from that diary is that Jonathan Edwards tried really, really hard, but he failed over and over again. He kept trying, and he kept failing. As you strive for peace, as you strive for holiness, you will fail over and over again. As Christians, we need to be committed, determined, resolved, but even more than that, we need Jesus. We need his help and forgiveness in grace, so do your best, try your hardest, 
to, to strive and to help each other. But when you fail, cast yourself upon the mercy and grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for loving us no matter how many times we fail you. We thank you for showing us grace and mercy no matter how many times we mess up and disobey you. We pray, Jesus, that, that you would help us to get back up and keep going. God, I, I pray for a heart that truly desires holiness. I, we so many times are like Esau, where we care a little bit about spiritual things, but not very much. We care more about making money and being comfortable and having other people like us. Help us to care about spiritual things. Give us hearts that long for holiness. Give us hearts that strive for peace and have the humility to admit when we're wrong and, and, and have the power to forgive like we've been forgiven in Christ. Give us hearts like that. God, help us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. May the God of endurance and encouragement in, <clears throat> let me start over. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You are dismissed. See you next week.